Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. got a Bible, I want you to go with me to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 4 is where we're going to begin in just a few moments. And again, I want to welcome those that are streaming live and thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, November is upon us, right? It is, of course, a very volatile time in our culture, Very un, a lot of political unrest and a lot of anxiety and fear. And it's not that anxiety and fear have not existed before this time. It just seems that Crises tend to produce one of the good things, a culture of caring. And when a culture of caring begins to happen, then we begin to learn that other people are dealing with the same things we're dealing with. And uh, see, life has this unique way. When things seem to be going well, we can be very quick to live independently. It's easy to be independent when things seem to be going well. But we're going to start this series today, No Fear November And um, let me just kind of give you a a basis of the series. We are transitioning as a church. We are. We're at the precipice. We're at the cusp of a brand new season of church life where God is leading us. And I want to tell you, in my pastoralship, in terms of leading and praying for this congregation, God's been dealing with my heart specifically about where God is going to lead us, is going to require us to drop some bad habits. It's going to require some people to move out of comfort zones into something called risk. Okay, If God's calling us to change and it doesn't require a level of risk, it's not an exciting change. Might as well just rock vanilla into the grave. Okay, Every true change that we face in life is going to envelop some type of risk. Right, It's going to pre- present some type of risk. And not only for some of us to drop the bad habits, but I think for some of us in this room, as the Lord's been speaking to me, that you have some behaviors and beliefs that have quite honestly become debilitating for you, debilitating in your ability to move forward. And I assure you from the outset of today's message, I'm not picking on anyone. You need to hear me today. I'm not picking on anyone. But we're going to talk today about fear. We're going to address fear and anxiety. I've entitled this message today, When Fear Has a Hold on You. When Fear has a hold on you. And let me just tell you right from the outset, there are some that are not here today in the actual gathering and they're streaming and they chose not to be here in person, not because of a virus, but they chose not to be here because of fear. Now hear me before you think I'm starting to throw stones. Listen to me for a few moments. What I mean by that is we have a much, 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 much larger fear problem in America than we do a virus problem. You don't, have, you don't have to minister for long before you figure that out. You don't have to engage with many folks before you figure that out. Many of us, we live even from childhood with a fear problem. We, we have a fear problem, an anxiety problem, and we use all kinds of small little kind of cheesy acrostics to try to administer to people, but they don't help. Fear, false evidence appearing real. Okay, that helps for what, a nanosecond? And then you're back to the same feelings that you've experienced, okay? It has no power to transform you. Please hear my heart. I'm not saying as Americans we shouldn't take precautions. We should. Hear me. You should take precautions. If you're a mask wearer, you keep wearing a mask. 
You should wash your hands. You should do all of the things that you think are appropriate with social distancing. But let me tell you something. Today, I'm not talking about what's going on out there. I'm talking about what's going on in here. And what's in here is not a virus problem. It is a virus problem of a different sort. Of a different sort. What's going on in here? So we're going to walk today through this issue of fear. And you need to understand, need to understand, while fear can be an emotion, never, ever, ever forget fear is also a spirit. Okay? It's very easy to chalk up fear to only being an emotion in moments like we live. And as someone who has dealt with some pretty debilitating fear and anxiety in my life, and we're talking about as of late, as of recently, I'm not coming at anyone. Listen to me. I'm trying to come beside you and walk with you this morning. To saunter up and say, hey, how can we link arms and move forward into the future? And here's what I'd like to do. I'm not going to call anybody out. I'm not going to make you say anything, anything like that. But I would like for us to be all on the same page. So in order to kind of set the tone, if you in this room are here and you would say presently, I am struggling with some sense of debilitating fear. I'm not talking about a fear that just pops up once every month. But I'm talking about you have some type of behavior changing fear. Okay? It's some type of debilitating, and it doesn't have to be in all areas of life, but in an area of life. How many would say, that's me right now? Here's what I want you to do. Just put your hand up. Excellent. There's hands all over this room. Okay, It's a lot of us. Listen, it does not make us weak to deal with that. Here's what makes me weak. When I try and fight the fear by myself, that's what makes me weak. Experiencing the fear is not weakness. And so we're going to walk through fear, but understand something, please. From the outset, Satan's goal with fear is clear. Are you ready? His goal is to get you so afraid of what might happen that he keeps you from doing what must be done. That is his number one goal of fear. His number one goal of fear is to keep you or to get you to rile you up and make you so afraid of what might happen that he keeps you from doing Again, what must be done. Now, one of the little tricks the enemy has as it relates to fear is that he replays the same scenario over and over and over again. Here's what I've learned about fear. One of the things I've learned is this. Oftentimes, the fear of something happening is far worse than it actually happening. And it's really easy to understand why. Let me tell you. The thing that happens only happens once. It only happens once. But when the devil replays that fear in you and me over and over and over and over again, it's like it happened a million times. So that's why the fear of it happening again is always worse than it happening. Because you have to live with that fear of it happening again. It's called the human psyche. And this is what fear does. The, the, the fear is a tool that Satan uses against so many sons and daughters of the living God to try and cripple them from actually fighting in the battle. Now, with that being said, look at Mark chapter 4, one of my favorite passages of, of Scripture, particularly as it relates to fear, because I think we see a little bit of us in the story. I think all of us look in this story and we see a little bit of us, we see ourselves, we see Jesus, and then we see the disciples that, that really can't handle or do not do a good job of handling the storm, and then we see Christ's response to the disciples when they don't handle the storm well. So let's read it together. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And when Jesus woke up, he's in the boat, Lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee. It's about a four-mile lake. They're probably about halfway through in the middle of the night. Jesus said to his disciples, okay, as evening came, he said, let us go to the other side. So they took Jesus in the boat 
and started out leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. They couldn't get away from the crowds. But soon a fierce storm came up and high waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill with water. And Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat. We often hear the stern. Okay, if you see a, a first century boat, there's not levels to that boat. He's literally on the same level the disciples are. He's just in the back. And um, Jesus was sleeping with his head on a cushion. This is how we know he intended to sleep because he brought a cushion with him. The disciples woke him up shouting, not speaking, not politely asking, shouting, Kradzo, teacher, don't you care that we are beginning to drown? Beginning to drown. Now think about that for a moment. Pretty fascinating passage. I think sometimes we think Jesus, we view him as, if I can say it this way, like a sissy. Like he stands up and he says to the waves, oh, if it's okay with you, if you just calm down. That's not what he says. When he gets woken up, go to the next slide. He rebuked the wind and the waves and said to the waves, silence, silencio, be still. Literally, stop it. And suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. And then he asked them, why are you afraid? You still don't have any faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who in the world is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Scripture says he rebuked the wind and the waves. I wish I would have been there to hear the tone of his voice. Probably helped me a lot. He stood up and he rebuked them and he said, you stop it right now. And it went like glass. Anybody knows that if the wind stops, the waves are still going to take an hour or two. They stopped instantaneously. At the command and imperative of our Savior, it went like glass. He was authoritatively, here's the best way to translate this, putting the storm in time out. He authoritatively declared, you go to your place. And suddenly what happened? It became still. Now as we jump into point one today, I want to tell you, if you struggle with fear, you're not going to like point one. You won't like it at all. Okay? But it's the truth. When we talk about sinking fear's little battleship, how do we sink the battleship of fear? Here's one, the first thing we must remember. Number one, storms are inevitable. Storms are inevitable. Now, if you grew up word of faith or some charismatic movement, you are thinking in your heart and mind right now, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. I will have calm seas all of my life. Well, you can name that, and you can attempt to claim that, and you can get your favorite preacher to try to claim it with you. But that's not what Scripture says, so it won't be your experience. Listen to what Jesus himself says in John 16, verse 33. He said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have shalom, peace. Watch this. In this world, while you're living here, you will. It's not an option. You will have tribulation. You will have suffering. You will have conflict. You will. He says, it won't be easy. But I don't want you to fixate on the tribulation. You have to endure I want you to focus your thoughts on this. Craig, what do I focus my thoughts on then? Here's what he said. You're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Here's where I fixate. I have overcome the world. Everything you're facing this week, Jesus has already overcome. There's nothing and no room you will walk in this week Jesus has not overcome. Nothing. That's the truth of the gospel. I have already overcome it. I've already overcome the world. You're not going to face anything. There's no darkness you're going to feel. There's no threat you're going to experience that I have not already overcome. Now here's the point of the issue. If you have an anti-storm policy theologically, 
So you live with an anti-storm policy theologically. If you don't understand that storms are inevitable, you will resent God every time you are in one. You will resent God. You will think God did not do what God said he was going to do. You'll get mad at him. You'll take it out on him. You'll get in a fight with him. Because your expectation was there will be no storms. The very minute I get saved, Pastor Craig, the very minute I say yes to Jesus, the storms totally subside in my life. Nope. Sometimes the storms get worse. But the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel is this, that once you get saved, once you make a decision to follow Jesus, Jesus is in the boat no matter how bad the storm gets. And listen to me, church. Any theology which eliminates tribulation is built on earthly fear, not a heavenly father. Any theology that I begin to accept that does not make place for tribulation on the present age is built on earthly fear, not a heavenly comforting father. See, what the disciples wanted was for Jesus to stop the storm, but what Jesus wanted was the disciples to trust him in the midst of the storm. So if you have an anti-storm policy, theologically, you need to understand something. Some of the best revelations come from surviving the raging seas. Some of the best revelations you'll ever get of Jesus. Listen to what the disciples say at the end of the storm. Who in the world is this guy? They just saw him multiply some loaves. They just see him raise a dead. They've seen him touch a withered hand. And yet they ask themselves, who in the world is he? In other words, we saw a side of Jesus in surviving the storm that we've never seen before. They got a greater revelation of who Jesus was as a result of making it through the storm with him. In other words, they paid the full price for that personal revelation. Newsflash, if you're going to be a leader in the body of Christ, you will not get the personal revelation by not paying the price. That is not good news. Doesn't sound good news at all, does it? It won't happen. You will not be able to lead other people in the body of Christ through surviving raging storms unless you pay the personal cost of what it actually means to see Jesus walk you through the storm. And here's what that means. Here's what it means, church. God does not prevent storms. He does not prevent storms. Why? Are you ready? Because they produce too much good to be bad. Biblically, there can't be a bad storm. Because it produces way too much good. Storms, when we walk with God, can produce some really great things. They can produce strength in us. They can increase our faith when we see God move in the midst of no matter how bad the storm is. See, listen to me. Those who are saved do not escape storms They just know what to do in the storms. Storms are inevitable. I'm preaching only 40 minutes today. I'm already to point number two. You ready? Say, Craig, why? Because we're going to minister to people. We're going to pray for people today. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to see God do what only God can do. And we're going to make time for it. Point number two. Fear is never the right response to a storm. I'm going to say it again. Fear is never the right response to a storm. Church, It is far more important that Jesus calm the storm in you than calm the storm around you. Far more important. See, we are programmed to think. I think it's part of our culture. We base how everything is going in our lives depending on how bad the storm is around us. So what happens is if the storm is small, things seem pretty good. If the storm's really big, things don't seem to be so good. Here's the problem. Oftentimes, what I've learned is that the storm raging in me is far worse than the storm raging around me. 
it's usually never to do with the storm around me. It's the storm that's going on internally. And the disciples are saying to Jesus, hey, stop the storm. And I really think, I can't prove it completely biblically, but I think Jesus was looking beyond the wind and the waves and saying, hey, guys, I'm going to take care of that in a minute. I got no problem. I created those wind and waves. But in this moment, I want to address the storm inside of you. I don't want to address the storm around you because, listen, disciples, you're going to die for me. You don't know this yet. You're going to follow me to the ends of the earth, and you're going to share my gospel. And in order for you to go where I need you to go, you're going to have to learn to navigate some storms. So, Craig, listen, I'm walking you into a season. I can't tell you ahead of time what that season's going to be because you won't follow me. You won't look at me anymore. You'll try to take it on yourself. You'll try to get strength in your own, own ability and your own legs. But you got to hear me, Craig. I, you got to understand, I'm not always going to make the storm stop. But I need you, Craig, to deal with the storm raging inside of you. Why? Because, listen to me, experienced sailors are never made with calm seas. You can't be an experienced sailor to help others through the winds of life if you've been only through calm seas with calm moments. And here's what the spirit of fear does. It absolutely causes you to feel so riled up, so defensive, and so agitated that you think every rain cloud is going to kill you. I remember one time when I was very overwhelmed by many things in the midst of, of really battling the spirit of fear. And my spirit of fear wasn't... Um, It wasn't circumstantial in the sense that if the circumstance left, the fear left. It was much more of a, of a dark night of the soul, a much more of a monthly process for me. And I remember being so overwhelmed one time, really battling the spirit of fear, and I tried to get in with the Lord, and my brother Craig, uh, Chad, helped me, and, and my, my wife was obviously the strength of my life, and I'm watching this storm in front of me. It was scared the tar out of me. And I know God's got me by the hand and he's walking me into this storm. And I, I just begin to be so afraid of what I would lose. So I started being afraid of what it would cost me. What's it going to cost me to actually walk through this season of life? And I was very angry with God, extremely angry with God. Certainly didn't want to approach him in a lot of ways to even ask for his help because of what I had felt at that point I was experiencing. And so I remember one day trying to get along before the Lord and I was with my Bible, and I felt that the Lord really kind of sauntered up next to me while I'm freaking out looking at this storm. And I'm, I'm wigging out, and he's like calm. And I never forget, it's almost like his arms were crossed, and he, said, he, he stood there with peace, and he said, Craig, how silly is it for a sailor to be deathly afraid of the very thing the farmer begs me for? You're talking about slapped. I wanted to slap back. How silly is it, Craig, to be quaking at the very thing farmers beg me for? What was he saying? Craig, the problem is not the storm. The problem is actually your perspective of the storm. Can I, can I change your perspective? Can I begin to do work in you? And the very thing that the sailor was afraid of that would kill him is the very thing the farmer begs God for. So how do you see the storm? How do you view the storm? Fear says it's going to kill you. It's going to take everything from you. You know what faith says? Faith says, hey, it's going to soften the rocky soil beneath your feet and produce a harvest that never could be produced any other way. Craig, how, how, how do I know I'm struggling with the spirit of fear? Easy. The answer is simple. When I believe everything it says. 
You know you're struggling with the spirit of fear when you begin to believe everything it says. Now, this is something, listen, church, I really had to work through. I want to tell you just a little bit about my story. Somewhat, I have to fight feelings of embarrassment a lot. Other times, I have to not feel embarrassment at all and shame because of the reality of what it actually took from me and then ultimately transformed in my heart. So years ago, I had grown up most of my life with no, no fear. And when I say no fear, I felt surface-level fear, but had never, and I thought all people dealt with fear this way, had sunk into the synapsis or the trauma center of my being. So in other words, I was always able to take pride, if you will, in the strength of mental capacity to just write off fear. It could never really grab hold of me. And uh, many of you know this, but it started with me with a back injury. I tore L3, uh, L4, really messed it up, all the muscles around it, which then put me really, really um, immobile. I didn't walk for, for a week or two. Uh, I was in the hospital, and then I didn't tie my shoes for four or five months. And when I went into the hospital in January, I um, basically was kept under. I have no memory um, when the ambulance came that night, they gave me Verset, which is an amnesia drug. And I'm starting to get a little clarity. I'm thinking in some ways, the trauma that I experienced from that is, it, it took months and years to actually unearth where I had no conscious memory of what actually happened in that time because the, the, the drug took away my memory. And that's the crazy thing about amnesia drugs, right? You still experience the pain, you just can't remember the pain. So if you can't remember the pain, you can't build fear up about the pain in the future. You have to placate the pain to something different, the fear to something different. And so for me, I, I was in the hospital, and they gave me Valium. I mean, I basically just slept for a week, and I came out of that and came to church on a Sunday, and Monday hit, and it entered into to the most scary season of my life. Um, I think in many ways it's medically induced, but at the same time, we had a pastor friend who kind of did the same thing, and it started with uh, medication going into just deep, deep anxiety, panic, and depression. And because the disassociation with myself was so prevalent, um, it was so shocking because, again, I thought I'd lost my life. I thought I was living in another body. Uh, I'd never experienced. Um, those first few weeks, I tried to read my Bible, and I couldn't read my Bible coming off the medication. And so the enemy began to tell me, you will never read the Scripture again. And because I was unable to focus on words, uh, the, the, it just kept going downhill. And I didn't sleep for, I don't know, four or five days in the beginning. And I was laying in bed one night, and as I was laying there, I drifted off to sleep, and the enemy... Somehow, some way, of course, it was allowed by the hand of God. So there is comfort there, but there wasn't comfort in the time. Um, came in and gave me a dream that he was pulling me along with demons into hell. And um, I woke up that night, and I, I wasn't just scared. Um, I, I don't know how to put words to what was happening. I could not get escaped. In some ways, I was coming off medication, so I had some PTSD from the trauma itself. I had to go to you know, figure out why my toes, I'd lay in the bed and my toes felt like huge trampolines. And then I would see this dark space and I'd be separate from anything that's good, lovely, and, and I was being pulled from it. And, and it, was, uh, it, was not just an, it was not just like, oh, it happened once a day. It was a, it was a perpetual state that I was in. And so I was, getting, it was, I, was, I was getting worked up. And I would hear all kinds of things. You can imagine a season like that, I would hear all kinds of things. And, and what I'm going to do for the next few moments, I'm just going to expose the lie that started my battle with the spirit of fear. You ready? One day as I was coming out of that, the enemy spoke to me and he told me, Craig, if you say yes and continue to say yes to the calling of God on your life, what I did to Job will pair. Will, will, will pale in comparison to what I do to you and your family. 
And instead of telling everybody, what I did, what I did was try to fight it myself. So, so here's the thing. Everyone that would give me Christian counsel, it really didn't help because they would say fight it with Scripture. But the problem was when I quoted the Scripture, the enemy then twisted the Scripture. So I was, it was nonstop having to be around people who would then take the Scripture and actually try to convince me with enough faith that the Scripture actually meant something different. Like I pleaded three times to take this thorn away. So then I was convinced that the thorn I would have would that I would live this way the rest of my life. And God would just say, my grace is sufficient. And it got worse. You can imagine, it got a whole lot worse. And I started responding to everything in fear. And um, I came out of it. Praise God, it's about a two-month deal. And I started leveling off. And then September came. And when September came of that year, it was September 27th. And we were in Kennesaw, Georgia. And I came out of the jumpy place with all trampolines and the dark clouds closed in and they wouldn't leave for about, about six months. I had no idea. I thought I could make it one or two weeks, certainly not six months. They, they closed in. And I felt the overwhelming, overwhelming fear. And here's where it started. It was, a, it was a lie from the devil. Yeah, I was sick. Yes, I was vulnerable. I, you know, I tried to process this a lot with my pastor, Pastor Chad and and often we came to the realization that in my weakness of physical, this, this sin-soaked um, body, when it got sick, the enemy just used the opportunity of a weak brain right there to get in where he never has been able to get in. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced it was an assignment to take me out. I, I don't think it was just a minute attack. I think it was a, a, his big chance to say, let's get rid of him. And can I just tell you, I think too many believers believe that every voice they hear is God's voice. And particularly when you're in seasons of deep fear. But can we just expose something for a moment? That many of the things we hear are actually our enemy, not our Heavenly Father. And, and I would hear things like this. The enemy started showing me. Um, I went back into this season and we were trying to silence the voices. And because of a lot of what my experience was had to do with worship music, um, all the things that people tell me to do, I couldn't do. I couldn't listen to worship music. That was an absolute no-no. So once I got into the emotional realm, that did not bring any help. That brought overwhelming. So every way that I had fought this in the past, it felt like it was just closing in on me. And I, I remember it getting so bad in one season of life that I would wake up every morning and I would walk down the steps. And as I'd walk and turn, I could, I could take you to the house. We've now sold the house. Every time I turned, I knew that was the starting point that the rest of the day would go. And I remember thinking, am I going to be able to make it for the next 10 minutes? And then am I going to make it for the next 30 minutes? And then I got to make it for an hour. And I would hear, sometimes like this, I would wake up in the morning, I would hear one particular day, today's the day, Craig. You won't get to see your, you won't, you won't get to see your children make it to high school. Now, that sounds so stupid. I could be so embarrassed if I had some pride left in it. But I don't have any pride left in it. I, I could not fight it. I could not fight it. I say, Craig, were you just defeated by it? No, I had people around me that would believe for me. I certainly didn't isolate, but I was believing that lie. And I'm thinking, but I'm exposing it now. And think about it. Is that how God talks? I mean, really, first thing in the morning, you wake up. <laughs> God's been watching you sleep all night. You open your eyes and he says, hey, you're going to die today. This will be it. Is that the way he talks? No. I would be in an altar. Can I get really honest with you? 
For about four months, I preached to you folks, wonderful folks, amazing folks, and God would allow it to lift enough for me to preach, and I'd get right towards the end point, and then up here, it would it'd explode and say, well, I remember standing on the altar right there, and the enemy whispered to me, why everybody else is being ministered to? You won't see next Sunday. You're finished. And I remember in those moments thinking, okay, can we just remind ourselves, if you're battling with the spirit of fear, you will have to ultimately come to a point to do what I did. And here's what it is. Reminding yourself that not everything you hear is the truth. In other words, you don't have to believe everything you think. You don't actually have to believe. And in some seasons, you don't probably believe anything you think. You don't actually have to hold on to it. Oftentimes, oftentimes the darker the cloud, the greater the lies. And so you have to keep saying it. That is not how God talks. Y'all, I would then from that point forward, if I started getting a little turn in it, I would just tell myself all the time that is not how God talks. But I wouldn't do it under my breath because that wouldn't work. So that was the season of life. There was no ability to talk to myself under my breath because that voice would be too mixed up. And I'm telling you, even good-hearted Christians, way too many voices for me in that season, would text and get a prophetic word here. And, and then I am, it just added to the mess of everyone trying to give me more and more words. And I'm getting deeper in the swirl and deeper in the confusion and deeper in the confusion. And I, I, I would be in Starbucks. I remember one time because I, I got to a place where I could leave then my wife and was a much bigger step I could get away from her. And I went to the Starbucks to work one day and I'm sitting there and the lie came in that present moment and I remember catching myself out loud saying, that is not how God talks. I said it again, that is not how God talks. And the dude behind me sitting at Starbucks on, on uh, Riverstone Parkway, he was ordering his caramel macchiato and he probably thought I lost my marbles. Okay, I don't care. I was hearing a lie at that moment and I was tired of hearing that lie. I said, I, my God does not talk like that. And people are like, who are you talking to? I don't know who I'm talking to. Just, my, my God does not talk like that. Listen to me. If you're struggling with fear, hear me, hear me. Your enemy is the father of lies and he is the author of confusion. So hear me. When you get all stirred up emotionally, that is not God. When you're all stirred up emotionally and in a frenzy, that is not God. God is not trying to get your attention in any way through that type of experience. I remember I had to carry my journal around because I started going to therapy and, and I would get my journal. And this is my journal. I, I would keep to the day I die. It'll, it'll get passed on to my kids. But this is my journal during that one long stretch. And I kept it with me during that season. I mean, everywhere. Gas station, anywhere I went. Because unfortunately for me, again, I'm embarrassed to say, I guess, I, I was believing the lies I was hearing too often. And one of the ways that I combated those lies was to try to write down anything God would say. Now, the problem was God led me into the storm and probably had already predetermined he wouldn't say much. I didn't like that because I wanted him to talk, particularly when the person he loved and saved and brought out of sin cried out to him. I needed a response to him. And so to combat it, I would be driving in my truck, folks, and God would talk finally and when God would talk, I would literally find the nearest parking lot and I would stop everything and I would write down every word God would say. And one of the ways that even, even God and his faithfulness to open up a, a few moments or a few hours of every day where it would kind of lift for a little bit. And my wife would always remind me, it's coming. He's going to give you a couple hours. It's going to lift. You're not going to be in this the entire day. I would get that out. And one of the ways I shoved it in the enemy's face is I said to the enemy, I will not bow down every time you speak to me. But I will, when God chooses to speak, 
speak to me, I will stop everything in my life and I will write down every word. That's what I began to say to him. Your words will not dictate my life. His word I will follow all the days of my life. He's already been too good to me. And so all of a sudden I came out of the defensive mode to a little bit of offense. You see that? Woo, the enemy hates when you get on offense. Okay, some of you in here today, you're in a complete season of defense. I feel for you. I want to hug you. I want to walk with you. I wish I could get you out of it. But I'm telling you, there'll come a turning point where the offense will rile up. And if you allow the Spirit of God to allow the offense, the offense to stump, that's when healing begins to take place. And so you have to refuse to respond in fear. I would, there would be nights I'd listen to sermons all night long. I told you I couldn't personally listen to worship music, but David said your words minister to me all night long. That's what he said in the psalm. So what I do is literally all night long, I would listen to sermon after sermon after sermon and, 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 and engage and write down. God spoke to me two things in that season I'm so grateful for. One of the things he spoke through was a prophetic word that God was giving me a lion's heart. It was in the worst night that I had of all of that process. Some of you are aware of that night. And uh, my mom, for Christmas this year, she got a book and someone folded it and there is a lion and a heart, right? So this goes as a reminder on my desk that God was giving me a heart of a lion, a heart of courage for what I would need in the days to come. Another, an, another one he gave me was out of the book of uh, Ecclesiastes and in the book of Psalms. Where God said, Craig, in this season, what I'm doing is I'm enlarging your heart. Your jaw will drop at how large your heart will be when I'm finished with this. But then it would be weeks, and then it would be months of, again, just feeling the pressures, right? I want to tell you, God's word that we hold in our lap is the greatest weapon against the lies of the enemy. Now, you may be here today, and you may say, in this moment, I don't really struggle with fear, Pastor Craig. I don't really have an issue with fear. I know friends that struggle with fear and family members struggle with fear. But I wanna, what I want to do is I want to walk you through two behaviors that let you know whether or not you struggle with a spirit of fear. Can I give you two behaviors? Here's the first behavior. Number one, fear causes overreaction. Fear causes overreaction. Listen to me. Every emotional overreaction is rooted in fear. Every emotional overreaction is rooted in fear. What do the disciples say in the middle of the storm in the boat? They don't just go wake up Jesus and whisper. Don't, they say, don't you even care, Jesus? We're drowning, we're perishing. Don't you love us? Have you forgotten about us? That was a total, y'all, dramatic overreaction. Jesus is sleeping. Now, I'm not poking fun of anyone in here. Hear me. I'm not poking fun of anyone because I have, I've been guilty of this when I was battling fear. I overreacted constantly. I'm sure there's still some residue, in it to, a residue of it to, in me today. My wife and kids would probably tell you. I remember um, I got through it. The, the, the skies began to get blue. The clouds began to see were dissipating. It was about a six, seven-month period, and I went into this kind of respite season and I had all kinds of the trauma of the synapses and the rethinking and learning and relearning and working hard at all these behaviors and thought processes and lies that I believe, but I remember it kind of lifted. But because it was associated with weather of when it happened in fall in the house we lived in, we drove by it last night. She said, what do you think about that house? And I said, there is nothing, call it for what it will, there's nothing of those years that I want to even come close to again. I don't want to walk that street. I don't want to run that street again. I don't want to see another tree. I don't want to see another mailbox. None of it. None of it. Because it was so deeply embedded into the psyche of that moment. And I remember 
Getting back to the fall of that year, and guess what happened? It was a Saturday, and I walked outside, and the leaves began to blow in the shadows of October cast. And when it did, there it kicked back in again. And when it kicked back in, I remember coming home from church one day, and it had built so much, and I couldn't get a hold of it, that, uh, that Meredith had to lay me down in front of the couch. And I, at that point, was in full panic mode and hyperventilating and just trying to catch my breath and get my heart to calm down and all the adrenaline to stop. And as embarrassing as I am about that moment, I believe that that moment God used to actually begin the process of setting me free from that bondage of fear. Because it was in that moment where God like pulled me out of it and I, I realized how foolish fear is. I've had people tell me here at church that you've come to church before and you had similar experiences where you were pulling up to the church and you literally couldn't get out of your car. Why? Because you'd been told that, I'm not saying when you've been told, not by a person, you've been told by a demon. You've been told that you'd be judged here and the enemy voice put to you, you'd be judged and you would pass out and you wouldn't make it and you've got something medically wrong with you and you won't make it through service. I've had people tell, and that's how fear talks. That's how fear talks. So listen, it takes something small and it turns it into something huge. Fear is a liar. Fear is a liar. Now, why was I overreacting? Because the voice I was hearing was saying, this is just the beginning again. And when I hit that day in October, you know what the enemy told me that day? And I had to be honest with the people around me, get ready for another six months, but you won't make it through this one. Your family will bury you. So fear causes overreaction. If you're prone to do this, listen to me. If you're prone to be led by your feelings, I want you to write this one down. Are you ready? If you follow your feelings, you will be manipulated by your moods. If you follow your feelings, you will be manipulated by your moods. It won't just be fear that leads you. Your moods will eventually lead you. Here's the second thing fear causes. Fear causes overreaction. Fear causes, number two, overcorrection. What does overcorrection sound like from one of the disciples in the storm with Jesus? Here it is. They get to the other side. They get off the boat and overcorrection talks like this. I will never get in a boat again. Here's what overcorrection says. I will never put my kids in public school again. Here's what overcorrection says. I will never go to that public place again. I will never. See, this is how fear talks. It gets us to talk. And what happens is even people in this church, I see people in seasons of fear and seasons of life where they, because of the fear they're experiencing, which is accompanied by anxiety, and you know how those tend to go hand in hand with depression, then what happens is they begin to pull away and stay away. And, and what they tell me is that's my way of, of coping because when I get around people, that's my social anxiety, so it's going to make it worse. So I think the way I cope is to get away from people. I don't want to be in people's presence, but you need to hear something. They isolate in those moments. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, church. Isolation is not God's method of protection. Demolition is. You have got to hear me. Isolation will never be the way God tries to protect you. It is demolition. What does that mean? God likes to destroy your foes, not have you running from them in isolation. And you can try to, you can try to spin it all the ways you want to spin it to say you're not running from them. But when you isolate, you are running from them. God's interested in demolition, raising, R-A-Z-E, not I-S-E, destroying all of those fears. Why? Because fear causes us to overreact, and fear causes us to overcorrect. Listen to me, overcorrection is just fear's weak attempt at protection. 
And when I overreact, I will usually overcorrect. And that's simply fear's way of a weak attempt at protecting myself, which leads me to point number three, and this is the big one. How do I burn fear's little boat? How do I burn the boat of fear? How do I sink fear's little battleship? I'm gonna give you a few things. Here's the first one. Number one, you gotta focus on what God said, not what you see. Focus on what God said, not what you see. That's a cute little line on a sermon. I'm not saying you can do that by yourself. I'm saying you will have to surround yourself when you're battling the spirit that will make you keep looking at what he said, not what you see. I'm not saying that any of these things that you feel like you have full responsibility to do in every season of life. I'm saying that's the truth and the way out, though. You focus on what God said, not what you see. What do you mean? Let me draw your attention back to Mark chapter 5, verse 34. Mark chapter 5, verse 34 said this. The first verse of the story, we tend to jump over that verse. Okay, We go right into the storm, but verse 35, Jesus said this. As Jesus came, uh, evening came, Jesus said to the disciples, Let us cross to the other side of the lake. He said, hey, boys, we're going to the other side. So why during the middle of the storm were they freaking out like they were going to drown? I'll tell you why. Because in the midst of fear steering our boat, we listen to it more than we listen to him. It is the fear. When it begins to steer the boat, we listen to it. And Jesus had already said to the disciples, we are going to the other side. I remember when we started this church right through relaunch, the Lord told me in a prophetic word, he was calling us. And calling me personally, one of the prophetic words I got, I share with our team, is to be an architect of apostolic ministry. And the one thing God gave me is that we would run a school of ministry. And that school of ministry would raise up leaders in the body of Christ who would infect all seven mountains of culture. God made it very clear through multiple, multiple avenues. And we started the school, but the school didn't do what we thought the school would do from the outset. And I remember on a few of those days in the first two to three years of the church plant... I told the Lord, um, Lord, this is not what I saw. And he said, oh, I'm not arguing with that. I'm not arguing with that. Yeah. I'm not saying this is what you saw, but it is most certainly what I said. It's going to look like this for a bit. That's part of the process. Craig, I remember the Lord told me, Craig, remember I told you I would take care of everything. And then he asked me, have I done that? And I said, Yes. He said, well, then you have to stop paying attention to what you see and you need to focus on what I've already said. I wish I could tell you, church, that you only have to do that a few days and it's over. I can't do that. So this week I got a, a text. Can you throw my phone right there from a brother in our congregation? I love this brother. And this is what he said. He said, I had a dream around 4 o'clock last night. God wanted me to remind you about faith and to trust on his financial provision. I saw myself sharing a testimony to the church on how God provided for a radio program where I had the church. And I had half the funds, but it had to use someone unexpectedly to bring the exact amount needed for the program. Then I had a vision where I saw you standing and holding a large crock pot on your hands. And I saw how you were preparing a large like meal, like a soup. You had all these vegetables and chicken, and I saw how you were carrying this to feed multitudes. Then I felt that I knew why God was showing me this. This person's never heard me talk about this in my life. And I said to you, I feel in my spirit that God is allowing me to see this. Why? Because I feel in my spirit that God is showing me how you are feeding many, but he is giving you a dream for a school, and he will give you. He will give you the provision for the vision that he's placed in your heart. It's not just a dream. It's a desire of your father. Father. 
Focus on what I said, not what you see. Your word is a lamp to my feet, not what you see is a lamp to my feet. I've hidden what I've seen in my heart that I might not sin against you. No, no, no. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You focus on what I have said, not what you see. You focus on what I said. His word. His word. Here's the second thing. Focus on who's with you, not what's coming at you. If you look at Psalm 23, verse 4, a couple of verses I want to see and we'll close. He said, I will fear no evil. You know this. I will fear no evil. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yea is not mean like, yay, I'm going through the valley of the shadow of death. Yea means like even though. Notice it says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It didn't say, sit down and whine in the valley of the shadow of death. Because if you sit down and whine in the valley of the shadow of death, you stay in the shadow of the valley of death. You have to keep walking. Walking means it's transient. It means you're going to come through it. It means there's coming out of the valley of the shadow of death. I wish I could tell you the end day, but let me tell you something. In Jesus, suffering has an expiration date with every single person. Not only does it have purpose, it absolutely has to end. There is an unending cycle of peace, but chaos has an expiration date. With Jesus. It has an expiration date. And he said, I will fear no evil. Why do you fear no evil? Because uh, he had no fear? No, that's not his why. Because you are with me, your rod and your staff comfort me. Now we hear that and we see this nice little sweet, emaciated, really hungry shepherd with a rod and staff following his sheep on a steep incline, hoping not to fail and turn his ankles. That is not Psalm 23. You know what David is saying? Even though I walk through the darkest of times, I choose. Because remember, fear is a choice. It is a choice. Now, you feel sometimes limited in your choice in that moment, but it is a choice. He says, I choose. What will I choose? I choose to have no evil or fear no evil. Why? A, because you're with me, and B, because your rod and staff comfort me. Now, why did the shepherd's rod and staff comfort David? Because David knew as a shepherd himself what they were used for. See, a shepherd would use these two to beat back the wolves who came to attack the sheep. And David says, God, in essence, I thank you. Thank you that when these wolves come to try to attack me, your rod and your staff are beating back my enemies. They are beating them. Now, I wish sometimes God would just take you out of that whole whole hill and not let any wolves, but that's not how he normally does it. He takes you right into the center of fear, and he puts a rod and a staff on both sides, and he beats the wolves off of you. So here's my question. What are you more focused on? The wolves barking loudly because they'll be louder than God in that season. The, the, are, you, are you focusing on the wolves that are barking loudly coming at you or the shepherd who is with you beating back the wolves and your enemies? Which then leads me to the next thing I've learned really helps to sink fear's battleship. And that's thirdly, you have to be courageously offensive. And if you don't get anything out of the sermon today, this is what I want you to get. You have to go on offense. You have to go on offense. I'm going to revisit this in two weeks, and I'll get into much more of the details, but I've started putting together a Venn diagram of the difference between people. Would you show that real quick? I'll show you. The difference between clinical depression and dark night of the soul, of an unknowing and obscurity, an absence of consolation or comfort, a disconnected from the felt sense of the divine, immersed in mystery like a dark night we go through. 
clinical depression is something altogether different. This is going to be huge for pastors, leaders, ministry leaders to understand in the days to come. The feelings of worthlessness, appetite disturbances, losing weight, persistent sadness, trouble concentrating. But what is common to those is a disquietude, grief, a sense of failure and emptiness, a losing sense of passion for the things that I once had in life. And it's so important for us as the people of God to understand and know I can't go into response mode. I have to be offensive. Look at the next verse, Psalm 23 in verse 5, I love this. He tells us that he's going to lead us. Now, I want you to hear me. I went last night because I got, I got pricked in my conscience. The Gospels list 125 Christ-issued imperatives. So that means he gives imperatives 125 times. Watch this. 21 out of the 125 tell us, don't be afraid, don't fear, take heart, be of good cheer. You know what the second most common command of Jesus is? Love God and love your neighbors yourself. You know how many times it appears? Only eight. So if quantity is any kind of indicator, Jesus takes your fear very seriously. 21 out of 125 commands are be of good cheer, take heart, get your eyes on me, don't be afraid, look at me. So the one statement Jesus made more than any other statement in the Gospels, guess what it is? Don't fear. Listen to me, church. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's the ability to ignore it and advance. We're trying to teach our kids right now. They're young. And the goal is, Knox, when you're in difficulty, is not to walk through it without fear. We should tell our kids, you're going to be really afraid at times. The goal is, to, well, don't be scared. That's what I heard in church. Don't be scared. That don't work. The goal is to feel you're afraid, son. Know you're afraid. Recognize it, feel it. Feel all that fear come crashing in. Know God is with you. Then step by step, learn to ignore what fear is saying and advance no matter the cost. Because that's what courage is. Courage isn't not feeling the fear. It's feeling the fear all around you, knowing the threat of the fear, and yet trying in some way, somehow, to ignore it and keep on moving. Listen to me. Every occasion for fear is an opportunity to be brave. And the number one sign of courage is obedient offense. Meaning, the big thing about the enemy trying to scare you so that you'll curl up in the fetal position is he doesn't want you to play offense, church. He likes you best when you play defense. But if you've read the end of the book, if you've read the Bible, victory is all along the way. Our God reigns, so fear should not. My question for you today is this. How offensive are you? See, I didn't realize when I was going through my season of how a fear of how defensive I'd become. And the more defensive I became, the more overreaction came in my life and the more defensive I became again. And it became a cycle. I was playing defense and then one day, I can't tell you how it happened, I had gotten so fed up with losing to fear that I went on the offense and I started playing offense. And you know what happened? If you're struggling with fear, hear me and I'll close. You need to hear this deep down in your heart. The devil is more afraid of you than you are of him. And here's why. He is absolutely terrified of what you will do holding God's hand when you don't listen to him anymore. So he's stupid because he brings fear on you when he knows Jesus is with you and Jesus will walk you through it and then turn the fear back on his head. You'd think he'd stop after a while, but he can't because his time's getting short. So he's trying to freak you out just like he tried to freak me out. And for a season, 
my wife, help me, Craig, you're not playing any offense anymore. You're, def- you're, you're def- defending. And listen, one of the reasons I've devoted my life to ministry is not because just I love the job and feel called to it because this is one of the greatest ways for me to be offensive in life is to lead others in charge, to be offensive against all of God's enemies. And that brings us to the last thing. How do you sink fear's little battleship? Come on up, team. Here's the fourth one. Don't forget to take your seat when it's over. I love this one. You ready? We'll end on this one. This is filthy. This is filthy theologically. That's what the young boys would say today. This is what the young generation, Psalm 23, verse five. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Y'all, I love that this is the way God talks about your enemies. He said, God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Have you ever read that verse and wondered, like, what do we do with that table? What do we do? Like after the storm, we make it through the storm, we sit down on the table in the presence of our enemies. Let me point this out. It's like Jesus and the disciples in the boat, and after the wind and the waves calm down, they're breaking down the game film. Can I tell you? Can I, here's what I believe is happening at this table when you make it through your storm. Here's what I believe is happening. God sits with you at that table, and he celebrates every single step where you crushed the enemy's head. He celebrates it, and he pats you on the back, and he lifts up your chin to look at his face. Woo! And he celebrates every victory. He celebrates every act of bravery. He celebrates when everything looked like it was against you and you kept walking. He celebrates every victory as the enemy looks on. It's, it's, it's as if, I like to think of it this way, it's as if though God sits down with you right there on the bench and he looks at your enemies and he says, no, no, don't you look away now. You watch as we celebrate how the two of us just absolutely dominated you. We dominated you. You thought you were going to take this one out? No, 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 no. We dominated you. And, and people, you know, people trying to reinterpret this verse. They're saying, that's like God offers you a table with your enemies to come sit with you. Man, I ain't, I ain't falling for that stuff, no. You, you read David's Psalms. The interpretation of this Psalm is David gets set down with Jesus, and Jesus looks at all of his enemies and says, hey, <laughs> look at this. You thought you were going to get him? Nope, I preserved him. You thought you were going to take him out? Nope, I preserved him. What? He is faithful every single step of I want to sit at that table all the days of my life. But here's what you got to know. In order to sit with him at that table, I first must be brave enough to navigate the valley of the shadow of death, the trials, the storms, the difficulties. You don't have to be afraid. Because God has been you. Fear does not have to have a hold on you anymore. And church... I join with you in all that's coming at us right now. What's coming next? I talk to parents every week. How do we figure it out? How can we move forward during this crisis? And people are trying to figure things out. And there's chaos all around us. And I'm not saying we don't get into scenarios where we believe God and we know a bit of the Bible. But then life happens to us. And there is the temptation to turn. Listen, mamas, mamas, listen to me. There is a temptation to turn legitimate concern into illegitimate worry. And I want to make sure you understand the difference. We ought to be responsibly concerned about a pandemic. We ought to be responsibly concerned about our loved ones. Worry, though, is when the situation is controlling you and you're no longer controlling how you respond to it. So watch this. Worry is concern gone haywire. Here's what worry is. It tells you, you can't sleep now. I'll keep you up. I'll do it for a next few nights, actually. This is what worry says. Hey, you're going to sweat right now. I'm going to make you sweat. You ready? Let's start sweating. I'm going to make your heart palpitate. That's what worry is. 
you don't get a choice then. Now you're, 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 you're not responding. In other words, it begins to dictate your well-being. And when that happens, you've crossed from godly, actually godly, legitimate, responsible concern to illegitimate worry. God allows for concern. He does not want you to worry. Why? Because you have a father. Jesus We always talk about God as creator. Jesus in the Matthew 6 passage when he says, don't worry, do not worry, do not worry. He says it three times. You know what he says? Do not worry, do not worry, do not worry because you have a father. And if you can think of God in terms of the midst of all the chaos as a father, he's creator, he's savior, but he's also daddy. church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.